Okay. We are live now, and this is uh, the 18th of Cheshvan, and it is a portion discussion for Vayera. And uh, we're glad to have Gloria back from Israel. It probably would have been better if she stayed there and she kept sending wine, but uh, that's, uh, that's great. And glad to have Suzanne with us for the first formal portion discussion. And uh, I think there's no other announcements. Joshua? Well, there's one very important announcement. Yes? And that is the fact that you have a birthday. It's right yes. around this time of year. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Who's you. in charge here? Happy birthday, dear Joseph. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. And this is the start of your 60th year, This is the start of the 60th year. That is correct. You and I are 30 years apart. Exactly. Indeed. So, uh, as I discussed with you earlier, We'll be in some foreign land for our birthdays next year, I hope. Yes. Somewhere where the Torah is being kept. Yes. Joshua, please, thank you. That's very kind of you. Wherever you are, the Torah is being kept. So. That's a good point. It sounds like something your father would say. That's good. <laughs> I'm thankful for the land and for the food. Amen. Yes, we do bless God giving us those things. We had a great meal. Thank you, everyone, for chipping in. Um, so, yes, this week... We are studying Vayera. Um, has a, it's funny that the, the, uh, the word is, and he saw, or and he appeared. Um, we have a lot of interesting appearances in this week's um, parsha. Uh, there's a couple of different angels that show up. There's, um, uh, there's kind of, actually see angels in multiple uh, situations. Angels at the Mount Maria. We see angels um, with uh, we see angels with uh, with Ishmael. We see angels with um, Lot, and we also see angels with Abraham. And um, this particular uh, this particular portion, the beginning, um, deals with those angels that come and visit Abraham. And one of the things that's really interesting is. Um, the eagerness that Abraham has towards uh, wanting to serve. Um, uh, Sophia, can you hear me okay? I have a question for you. Is it, um, where are you allowed to run? Away. Can you run outside? Yeah, okay. What if somebody needs help? Can you run to get help? Okay, great. Where can you not run? Inside. There we go. All right. Um, so some places are good to run and some places are not good to run, right? And when we were doing something good, moving quickly to do good because you're excited about doing something good, this is a good thing. We should not run to do bad things. We should not be excited about doing bad things. So in this week's Torah portion, we see that Abraham runs to go and help the angels. He wants to... Um, he thinks that they're, they're visitors, they're guests, and he wants to give them food. So he runs very quickly, and he goes and tells Sarah, I need you to work very quickly and make some bread. And he goes and he finds um, a nice, healthy cow for, for food, and he goes and he asks, um, they, traditionally, his son Ishmael, it's like, hurry, we have to move quickly to do good things. We want to help out uh, these guests that we have. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of the story, 
we have the evil men of Sodom. And those men, it talks about in that story that they had heard, it's like, it's like you hear this story that like the, the angels come and visit Lot, and it's like right after they get there, it's really fast, the men of Sodom already know they're there, and they want to hurt them. They're so excited about doing something bad or wicked that they can't wait. And that is the contrast. Abraham is so excited about doing something good. He wants to do good as fast as possible. The wicked men, it says when the, in the scripture it talks about that God hates it when someone rushes to do evil. Feet are quick to do evil. Um, but some people are so excited about doing bad things, um, and that's really sad. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We should be like Abraham. We should be excited about doing good things and eager. Um, in fact, it's really cool when you read the, the Rashi commentary, they say that um, Abraham, after his circumcision, was not feeling good on this particular day. So he was, he was like kind of sick. He was not feeling well. And, um, and so God sent a heat wave to kind of scare people away. Like, okay, we don't want to bother Abraham today. Let's keep everybody in their houses. And Abraham was so sad that he couldn't help any guests on the way that God sent angels. Uh, specifically so that Abraham could could be hospitable to them. And uh, I just really, it just really hit me this week reading through it, just thinking about, like, um, that is such a special attitude to be disappointed when you don't get to do something good. I think so oftentimes we, we do what's right, and we do it um, consistently. I hope the people in this room do, do what's right on a regular basis. And so um, do what's right on a regular basis and do it consistently and habitually, that you know you're you're praying on a regular basis, you're studying the scriptures on a regular basis, you're generous and hospitable on a regular basis. Um, we would think that hopefully you're keeping uh, the Torah on a regular basis. But sometimes there's that feeling that when circumstances don't work out for you to do a mitzvah, that sense of relief, like oh, phew. okay, so the uh, the poor man at the, the street corner, he's not there today, so we don't have to pull out any money for him. You know, or, you know, it's like, oh, I, uh, I was going to pray this morning, but uh, the alarm didn't go off, so it didn't work out, so that's okay. Or whatever it might be. And, there's, and I feel like sometimes we, we find that sense of relief when we don't have, have to do something good. But Abraham was different. Abraham was so eager and so excited to do good that he was disappointed mm. when he couldn't do, uh, he couldn't serve others even when he felt badly. I mean, that's an excuse I feel like I use, you know, at least internally in my head. Uh, well, I would pay more attention in my prayers, but I have a headache, or I'm too tired, or whatever. Or I would be, you know, okay, I shouldn't have been a little short with that person, or I shouldn't have gotten mad in traffic, but I had a long day. You know, whatever it might be. Or sometimes, you know, it's like, well, I would help with whatever, but I don't feel good right now, so I'm going to sit here on the couch. Mm. And it's like, it's just so amazing that Abraham was not only willing to do good when he didn't feel good but he was disappointed in losing that opportunity and so god's reward for him was the opportunity to do good yes sir so uh, two things come to mind for those who uh, are unclear maybe uh suzanne is is unaware that the last portion um ended with his circumcision and that's why the sages say well you know this is chronological so therefore He's just getting over that soreness and so on. So that, uh, to your point, is great. I think, uh, I think what comes to mind uh, when you when you say those things is 
the adage that the sages have that if a if keeping a mitzvah draws me closer to God, then give me more mitzvah to keep, right? And uh, and that appears to be not only the the attitude that that Abraham had, but it's the attitude I think we should all have of of having the flip side of of where you say that we we all normally uh, can fall to. It's like Fortunately, I don't have to keep that mitzvah now. You know, and it's, it's a whole lot better if we've got that attitude of, wow, I got to keep a mitzvah. Right. Or I, I got to do that mitzvah. Right. And, and that's, uh, um, I think, been the focus of a lot of the men in the community this past year. Because we have more people for prayer in the past couple of uh, fest, uh, feasts. I mean, you've, you had, for the first time in quite a while, a minion for your prayers at your house with the Torah scroll and the whole deal, um, because I think we're all like, we only get to do this one time a year. Let's mm-hmm. let's do it. Let's take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's great, and I, I I'm hoping I keep that. But this week, actually, I meant throughout the year, but I'm working on a week at a time now. So. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because I think it, I think it's I want to say the Baal Shem Tov, but it may be an older rabbi than that. That there's a tradition that when he was getting ready to die, he was really sad, and it was so his his disciples were all confused. They're like, oh, "You're gonna go and join the Yochanan Ben Oh yeah, there we go. You're gonna go join the. Um, That's much older. The, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was. I couldn't remember. Um, you're gonna go and join the Holy One, blessed is he. Why would you be sad? Like if this is you're gonna go spend eternity with God. This is not a bad thing. And, yeah. And his his lament was, but there I don't get to do any more mitzvot. Like, I don't get, there's no reward for doing good anymore at that point. That's right. And it, it reminds me of, um, there, there are some in the Messianic community who take the tact of, well, the Gentiles don't, the Gentiles are not um, obligated in any way. You can do it if you want to, and that's great if you want to, but you don't have to. And I don't know, for me, that wasn't good enough. I wanted the obligation. I, I, you know, it's, it's, um, it's nice, you know, when you're when you're uh, dating someone and there's kind of this unspoken, you know, exclusivity in your relationship. Someone, one. Well, one person, right? But they, uh, ex- un- unspoken exclusivity in the relationship. But it's so much better in marriage, where it's like you have a covenant that binds you. You have expectations that are built into that that are that are God given or, or the vows that you've taken. And it's like that just is a different, um, it's a different level of seriousness and depth and intimacy. And I feel like that's true with our relationship with God. Like, I want to have to do these things. I don't want it to just simply be, um, well, that's nice for you, extra credit points, you know. I'll give you a big shiny star when we get to the end. But I'd rather it be like a relationship experience. Shiny master class. Right. <laughs> right. So it's just, it's really, um, and I feel like Abraham so captured that, that heart, that desire. He wanted so much to do right. And so it's so interesting that, that when God um, is planning then to act on Sodom, you know, he says, how can I do this without talking to Abraham? And it reminds me of a, there's a passage in the prophets, something to the effect of God, um, God does nothing without first telling his, his servants. Right. Um, Yeshua references the same thing in talking to disciples. He's like, see, I've told you what's going to happen ahead of time. Right. Um, and he makes it clear to them that he's only telling them because they're his friends. It says, you will be my friends if you do the things that I tell you to do. Yeah. Um, 
And so it's that intimacy and that relationship, that desire to serve God, that brings Abraham so close to God, to your point, that God feels like he can't even really do something in, in sort of Abraham's sphere of influence without talking with him about it first. But it's, uh, it's one of the few ways that Abraham is parallel with the Mashiach. Right? There's, it, I mean, you, you normally don't get a parallel between Messiah and Abraham. But this is one. I know you want to stay for the tourist study, son, but you can't yet. So the Messiah is described oftentimes in the, in the scriptures as the quintessential or ultimate Jew. Right. And yet, Abraham is, is, is phrased and described that way by the sages. As if he's, I mean, he's the first. He's the first, and he did everything right. You should do everything the way Abraham did. And so it's a great parallel to the master. Absolutely. In fact, at some level, he's sort of the, um, the primordial Jew, if you will, yeah. almost in the same way that Adam is the first man. Right, right. Abraham is sort of like the representation of what it means yeah. to be a Jew. Um, and just to clarify for those, for, for Suzanne who's new, um, we don't normally just have a conversation, my father-in-law and I, so anybody else that wants to join, just welcome to join. Um, just raise your hand, I, I'll try to catch you, or just jump in. Um, but yeah, no, I think, and that's why I, I, I thought it's so interesting to contrast that to Sodom. You know, I think that when, it, there are multiple places in the, in the Proverbs and in the Psalms that talk about men who are, who rush to do evil, men who are quick to shed blood, men who, um, you know, I think Yeshua even references like men who delight in telling a lie. You know, there's like, there's this, there's like, um, there's this excitement, this eagerness to do evil. And, uh, and a lack and, of shame. And a lack of shame. The frightening thing is that excitement to do evil, I think, is in all of us to some degree. I mean, that's part of what makes doing bad things fun. You know, there's a... The scripture says that Moses, uh, the writer of Hebrews, right? Moses uh, avoided the passing pleasures of sin. Right. So it's, there's a desire to it in us. Um, and we're supposed to fight that. And, and these men had so fed that desire on a regular basis that it became almost like you know what they lived for yeah. you know it was like it was the highlight of their day and that's just it's it's very disturbing and it's it's um but it's frightening because i think that that's um that's sort of like what it where it goes unchecked you know you think about abraham he's nurturing that desire to be hospitable and to be maybe to be generous and and to rush to do good and the men of sodom are doing the exact opposite they're nurturing and they're they're um and I don't know who knows. Who knows exactly how it started for them, but that's where they end up. And uh, in the end, there's not a single righteous person. I mean, one of the things the sages, Rashi commentary says about this sequence here, he points out that all of the men of Sodom show up. No one speaks out. No one even fails to join them. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, I think, I think at the minimum, those of us in this room would be like, well, I don't know if, I, you know, maybe we were afraid to say something, but we certainly wouldn't participate in, you know, um, heinous activities but but the entire city is uh eager to do evil and it, and the, and so when when abraham the previous passage had been praying to god hey if there's there's 50 righteous men if there's 40 righteous men if there's 10 righteous men you know we now we know why sodom was wiped out there weren't um and god like he did with noah and the flood only saved 
the righteous. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was wiped out. Can we talk a little bit about the grammar in this portion? Oh, yes, we can. Hang on one second. Pause um, for a moment. I was then... just going to say that about Noah. But, um, oh, I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. No, that's good. That, Great mind. The other, the other thing, too, was just... It, I, I was noting that Abraham... Like, obviously, he... Like we were saying. I mean, the, the most incredible guy that guy. we read about. But I do think that it's interesting that a lot of that gets fostered away from everybody. Right? Like, Lech Lecha starts by him going away from the influences of idolatry. Mm-hmm. And I think that... It, it's kind of a bit of an interesting thought, you know, that because obviously Lot was righteous enough that Hashem did spare him, and uh, but at the same time he had absolutely no impact on the on all of the people or around him, or his own him. family, or barely his own family, exactly. And so, but but Abraham is just such a different, uh, like he he represents such a different style of of maybe reaching people, yeah. where it's yeah, like. Yeah. He, he almost is an oasis where he is everywhere, right. right? Like, that's kind of the stories. It's like somebody could have been completely wicked, on just walking on the way, you know. But they but bump then, into Abraham. Yeah, but then they bump into Abraham, and it's like now they're coming into his space, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like they're entering into this bubble of righteousness everywhere where Abraham goes. Cool. And you just see, I feel like that that's like a lot like Yeshua, too. Right, like he just he he would constantly move around. He was always on the move, and he just had this another this parallel place of righteousness right. always around That's him. Right. To where even if somebody was wicked, whenever they stepped into this area, there was a, it was a very big impact on them. But see, it's such an interesting blend. Oh, oh, go ahead, Morgan. Uh, I was just gonna note, like the way you just said, Luke was righteous enough that he counted. It it does seem like God has such a black and white look at it. You're either righteous. Mm. Not. Right. It feels a lot more gray these days. Like, well, I'm kind of righteous. Like, sometimes I do a righteous thing, but like, I'm not all. Or like, because we are, that we're not perfect. Right. Like, well, we're, like, we still sin. Right. So are we righteous? Well, I think that like, the first John. So, did you want to finish the thought, or is the question? No, make her finish. Make her finish. I like it. I love that. It's great. It's good to stir it, up. It seems very easy for God to count it. Is is what right. I was meant You're to absolutely say. right. Yeah. yeah in this case, it was you either died or you were Lived. rescued yeah, by it was an pretty, angel. Pretty straight down the line. It's, it's very black and white. But if you read the story, I don't think that you find that Lot is perfect. Nor do you find. Nor do you find Abraham is perfect. I do. I do think you know. There's. The bothersome, the bothersome statement about Lot, to me, in here, is that his sons-in-law thought he was thought he was jesting. Mm -hmm. He was what? Jesting. When he told them that the city was going to be destroyed, they didn't believe him. We read it this week, and I turned to Alan and I said, "If there's anything I don't want, (laughs) is that my sons-in-law ever think I'm jesting about righteousness?" (laughs) I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No, they never would. I would like to make a point. When you get no, uh, same topic. Yes, it is. It's really going back to what Greg was sharing about Abraham and being in his space. And feeling, or he didn't say feeling, but sensing maybe the presence of God or the yeah. brightness or yeah. whatever, just that he's in a different presence. And I'm sure many of you have had people come into your home, as I have, and they sense God. Yeah. They sense the peace of God. Amen. Or maybe whatever it is, I'm not thinking about it, but they say something about it. And yeah. I know we feel that here when we come. Oh, yeah. 
Maybe pushing. there's been a lot of prayer going on for him. Mm-hmm. Maybe a lot of scripture reading mm-hmm. or whatever. And I believe God does. There's something that's in the air whenever yeah. that is going on. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect people. None of us are. But I think that, like, to the point of... He says not one. Right, absolutely. And I think that I think that you look at the story here we're getting from Abraham. Is that, to my point, what you were saying earlier, Morgan, that first John makes a point of what's your habit? What's your... If I were to look at you walking on the street, if I knew you a little bit better than just walking on the street, could I say, that's a righteous person or not? And to your point, Morgan, it's obvious, at least to God. There's not a, it's not like God's going, well, it's close, I'm not sure. Um, oh, you know, this morning he forgot to pray, so he falls in the wicked category. Okay. But it's more the sense that, like, it's a lifestyle. And you see that with both Lot and Abraham. I mean, Lot may have had some obvious errors. I mean, we see them here. But at the same time, he also had a lifestyle of goodness. Because I think, if you think about the society he's in, the fact that he's willing to to endanger his own family to bring these visitors into his home tells you something about what's ingrained in him. He does it naturally. He doesn't need to be told. He doesn't need to be convinced by a public speaker or by a really great song. He just knows that's the right thing to do. And I think that, in me, to me, that style of person, the person who lives that way, that is a righteous person. And then you see the men of Sodom, they fall in the opposite bucket. They live wicked lives. You can tell because their their general trend of life is, is wicked. Hold on, just one thought. Um, did you say anything, or do you want to talk about something different? Same thing. Yeah. I'll come back to you. The, just to go back to what Morgan bring it up, because it's a great point, because we all struggle with this idea. It should be black and white, and to God it is black and white, but how do we, how do we compare? And the sages look at Noah, and they say that Noah was righteous in his generation. And they see they 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 make that sound as if it's some sort of shaded language in the sense that, well, compared to everybody else, he was pretty good, and and mm-hmm. we kind of get that same idea with Lot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think what we we're kind of going the right direction, but I think we're kind of looking at it incorrectly, and that it's what it's what could be expected. In other words, uh, for what place and time they were, they were. <coughs> And in the same, and, and, and we, we see that actually in, in the uh, apostolic scriptures as well. Too much is given, much is required. So it's, it's, it's to those who know little, less is required. We say that even the pagans, as Paul talks about in Acts chapter 17, even the pagans recognize uh, certain things about God. And he attributes Athens' piety, what he calls their, well, their, religion, their religiousness, he attributes that as having a good motive to start with. He just goes off, off track because it's not worshiping the correct God. Mm-hmm. It's along those same lines. So I think that I think that Lot is a righteous man. Certainly not perfect. But compared to everybody else, and again, we don't like that, that language because then we say, well, you know, it's shades of righteousness. It isn't. It's black and white. Lot's in that category, and it's, he followed Abraham, you know, out of Mesopotamia out of Assyria. He stayed with him the whole way. There's something there that's evident in Lot's mm-hmm. life. And and certainly he didn't he didn't teach his children well, but you know definitely not his sons in law. <laughs> neither did many neither did many of the of the righteous men in, in scripture. He didn't teach his sons uh, his daughters well, he didn't teach his sons well. 
His wife certainly didn't learn from him. Uh, so what we can say is Lot was righteously sufficient to be saved himself. Right, which kind of goes back to what you see in the prophets. You get that same picture, God. Is that where you're going? No. I'll say that God does that same thing. <laughs> well, I don't want to cut you off. You have to, I hate to make the point someone else is about to make. Um, I want them to have the opportunity. But God does the same thing in the prophets. He's like, look, the society here talking about this stage of, of Israel's existence is so evil that even if Job and Daniel and Noah were here, they only could save themselves. Right. They're not good enough to overcome the society as a whole. And I think that, that we see that with Lot right here, right? So God, Abraham says, oh, there's ten righteous. If you do the math and you take some licenses with how many times daughters is mentioned and whatnot and sons-in-law, mm -hmm. you can potentially get to ten in Lot's family. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen. And that wasn't enough. And as so you think about like our own society, I mean, we've already gone through some cataclysmic events in our, in our country in the last 20 years. Um, I can only imagine it will only get worse. I mean, when, you know, uh, immorality is the number one entertainment industry in the country, I would say that we're probably not headed in the right direction. So I think we err if in a discussion of righteousness, we leave the Messiah out of it. So, you know, it's important that Gloria quoted from 1 John, um, where there's none righteous, no, not one. And in this context, we're speaking about those who need a Messiah. Mm -hmm. That is not speaking of those who act righteously. Because we do have the, the, the wherewithal and the facility to keep all of his commandments. Moses said that. You, you don't need anybody to help you. You can do this. It's not, you know, you don't get somebody over there, up in heaven, across the river, whatever the case. You know, it's, you don't have to do it. You can do this. You can keep it. We choose not to. We sin. It's our choice. But just to lift up my master, it's important to remember that Yeshua was preached. And his day was described to Abraham. And his belief in that caused him to be counted as righteous. <laughs> when did that happen? At the beginning? After his circumcision? Well, the first After few the chapters before here. You know, who knows? Bottom line is, there, there are two different righteousness, righteousnesses, righteous knees, righteous note, righteousnesses that you know, we need to examine. And, and I think that we should always look at those who have been saved by grace through faith in Messiah Yeshua and say, okay, I expect righteousness from you, mm -hmm. and so does God. Mm -hmm. right. And, as 1 John says, if we sin, if we, not them, if we sin, and we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, we are maintained and cleansed as righteous here on this planet. So, and at the same time, in that same book, John makes it clear that should if you say, I'm walking in the light, I'm with God, but you don't act you like sin. God, then you're, you're a liar. liar. I get it. So, I'm not saying that I disagree with anything that anybody said here. I just want to make sure that my master gets, you know, top billing here that you never met me. 
before Messiah. You wouldn't want to know me before Messiah. But now you should expect that I will live a righteous life and you should not only expect it, but demand it for the sake of your children. Because that's who I am now. I am in Messiah. And therefore, my life should reflect that. And you talk about that bubble. We're coming into somebody's house and wondering, hey, I spent time with the creator of the universe and so does my wife. It's not me and it's not my actions that changed this house. It's his presence. Absolutely. And there it is. Well, and, and to that point, I think that really answers Morgan's comments earlier is that there is that line, that very black and white line to God, and yet there is a certain degree of grace within that. So that Amen. Lot isn't perfect, but he's right. counted as righteous. And at the same time... And we need to wonder why. But at the, Yeah, right. I think that's a good, it, a valid point. I, I don't think that God took into consideration his behavior at all. Well, well I think he took into consideration his, his understanding of Messiah. I think that I think that that's a I think that that's the, the fulcrum of it, but I think that obviously faith in Messiah without works is dead, and so the the what made it so obvious to Morgan's point, where God doesn't have to like you know guess. Right. Uh, well, he said he believed in me. I guess yeah. that's good enough. <laughs> he 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 can be, see. There needs to be the fruit of righteousness. Loth is right there. Absolutely. Doing what he needs Absolutely. to do, and even where he's imperfect. And so I think that's where maybe these two these two positions harmonize and, in looking at God. So God sees it, and it is black and white, and it is um, wicked and righteous, yeah. and he can make that judgment and, and because of Messiah, Messiah's sacrifice. And, and at the same time, those who have fit in that righteous category, well, wouldn't you know it, they also act righteously. Amen. At least generally speaking. And the angels of Hasatan masquerade as angels of righteousness. Right. Well, there you is can a fake gray, it. but we're not supposed to be in that correct. But the faking it, the thing is about, the, Yeshua made a very important point, though, that the faking it was always ultimately obvious. I mean, I think this passage to me stands out because it's so, um, I can so feel Lot, Lot's vibe, and deal, living in a society that is evil and trying your best yeah. to be different. And you have to wonder why he was in the gate trying to meet the visitors. Right. I mean, yeah, he's probably trying to we save them. We wouldn't even have to read that it had a tortured soul. We can see it. That's got to be tortured. You can tell. Yeah. And, and so, you see, obviously he makes, I mean, well, this is an example of what happens when you don't raise your children well in that evil society. But the point is that, like, um, at, at this maybe it's time, a bad place to raise children. Maybe it's a bad place to raise children. <laughs> it's a really good point. Try New York. He's, 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 but at the same time, he's, he's dealing with it. He's fighting with it. And I think that um, I think that that is something that we can we can learn from to some degree because you know he he stood he stood up ultimately Amen. to that society and he said this is wrong and he was willing to put himself at risk I mean we were just I was just mentioning we were talking about earlier before we started here there's a news story this morning synagogue got, gets shot up I mean I'm very glad as I read that to know that my father-in-law is armed when we come here but that's point is I'm sure yeah, I'm sure several men are armed yes. Um, uh, some some are concealed carry, some are more open. Um, <laughs> but my point is that um, but the point is you live in a society that's evil. You live in a society that hates righteousness, just like Lot did. And I think that we suffer from some of the same pressures, some of the same dangers to our children. I mean, some of the same risks with our sons-in-law. Lot fails on some of that. On other areas, he succeeds. Um, but unfortunately. You know, he, he ends up the the the, the, dang, the the damage is done, 
at least to some members of his family. So I think that I, so someone mentioned earlier about um, right, Noah being righteous in his generations. My dad did, and I think that I think the scary thing is, as you read through the patriarchal stories, you see just how difficult it is to raise godly children. And that when you live in an evil society, it is even more so. Amen. And that Abraham, even though he's an oasis of goodness, even he has difficulty. I mean, Ishmael's less than perfect, let's put it that way. Um, you know, his grandson Esau is the epitome of evil. Um, his, uh, you know, and he's trying. He's doing a great job. God specifically says he's going to raise his kids the right way. It still doesn't always turn out perfectly. Um, although, what's really amazing about Abraham is even in spite of that, Ishmael comes back around again. You know, Lot doesn't have that experience, and I think that shows you the difference between a man who, who really engages his children to raise them in godliness versus someone who tries to live a godly life and hopes his kids are paying attention. And Abraham was a teacher. Abraham not only taught him his own children, and God says that in this passage, but he did a great job of teaching Lot. Lot was effectively his uh, stepchild, in a sure. sense. And, um, and Lot, he's called righteous. Load. He had a righteous right. soul. And his actions look so much like Abraham's. What's the righteous act he does? He takes care of guests. Amen. That was what Abraham was known for. That's right. And that and that played through. And if you read the passage in the in the Rashi commentary, it specifically says that when Abraham's going to gather up the food to host these angels, he grabs the young man and tells him to kill the calf. Well, tradition holds the young man is Ishmael. And I think that that's such a cool and a reminder as as parents that that we have to engage our children in good deeds. It's not enough to live good in front of them or to tell Bible stories or to tell them what they should do or not. We need to try to encourage them and, and, uh, and get them to join us in doing good. Amen. You know, that's one reason I thought this morning was awesome. I'm sitting over here on the couch and I'm surrounded by six children, six and under, who are quietly sitting here while we pray the prayers. And Some of them are joining in song as we get to that point. Other ones will get there eventually. And it's just amazing to see that and to realize that's what Abraham did. Amen. Abraham didn't just live his life in front of them. He trained his children and his followers to do good. And that actually stuck. And even when Ishmael, all the mess that he ends up becoming as a man, by the end of his life, he comes back. Mm -hmm. okay, Gregory. And Joshua, by the way. Oh. Gregory first, then Joshua. Just to add on to your point about adding the belief factor into the story, I thought it was interesting that we sort of see both, kind of to your point, when it comes to who is left behind and destroyed. So you've got this group of people, the wicked, that are clearly marked wicked because of their deeds, but it's the sons-in-law that are the example of the unbelieving, the people that are presented with truth in this case. Yes. And... They, they don't reject believe it. it. They reject it. They reject it. And so I just I was adding mm -hmm. that just as a an interesting that you know the story has contained in it both Everything. sides, right? It's got that that belief side to it yeah. as well. It's and, not just actions. Right. Yeah. And you even kinda of get that I think about um, in law, it's interesting that um, Lot has the same similar situation going on with his wife, right? So they get out there, they get out of the city, and the angel have been pretty clear. Just just go. Don't turn back, just go. And she turns around, and um, that doesn't work so well for her. But it's interesting that, again, you're talking about someone who's, like, this joined the family, kind of like an in-law, right? It's a spouse, not genetically related to you, hopefully. Um, and so you, uh, they've joined the family, um, at least not in our society, anyway. Um, we joined the family. <laughs> not this. But, but Lot had a responsibility to her. Yeah. 
just like he had a responsibility to his sons-in-law. He needed to not only live a good life, but he needed to 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 demonstrate his seriousness in it. Really, I think is what it boils down to. Because for whatever reason, his wife doesn't seem to take the angel's words very seriously, and his sons-in-law think he's joking. And it's unfortunate that he does such a poor job of of of, uh, of conveying the importance of this that's obvious in his own life to those around him. And I think that that's especially true of people you're not related to. I think that sometimes, you know, with your kids, that's its own challenge. But at least they're, you know, they kind of look like you, they've got some tendencies like you do, whatever. But in a marriage, you're trying to bring two different cultures, two different traditions. And and as the as the man, as the leader in the home, it's our responsibility to try to to guide that in, you know, as far as we can tell from the scriptures, what righteousness looks like. Amen. And we are the ones who are ultimately held responsible. Um, Lot's wife, unfortunately, ends up becoming a uh, literally a parable because Yeshua specifically references her later. Um, uh, the salt lick of Sodom. Right, right, right. Yeah, Gregory, you going to say something about that? Well, just that, because I've always wondered, like, when we were going through the Apostolic Scriptures, we were looking for, like, Halakha and stuff, and I always thought it was interesting that there are six times throughout Scripture where it says, remember such and such, and that becomes a part of Shakari. Remember, remember, remember this from Egypt. Remember the, the giving the Torah about Sinai. Sinai. Yes, Amalek's yes. attacks and right. Golden Calf. Anyway, so the, 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 then Yeshua uses the exact same phraseology talking about Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife is a literal verse from Yeshua. And I always thought that was interesting. Like, there must be something we need to remember from that. And I don't know, as we, I was reading through this year, I was wondering, Lot's wife seems like an interesting case of somebody that didn't finish well. Right. right. The, she started well. She was on her way being saved and didn't finish well. It was mid-journey to being completely saved that she dropped the ball. You know, mm-hmm. that, that her unbelief obviously caused her to uh, perish. And so I just was thinking about Paul's words about finishing the race and everything. And, right. and so just thinking about that is potentially as a, a good reminder as we you know, listen to Yeshua's words and try to remember the story, like what is it teaching us? Mm-hmm. And that being potentially a good thing, constantly being aware that, mm-hmm. you know, and praying that God continue to, to do a good work in us, seeing it to completion. How about the master's words about putting your hand to the plow and, and, not, looking and not looking back? Mm-hmm. To, I mean, to your point, or building a tower, right? This is the same man who said, "Remember Lot's wife," mm-hmm. is the one who said, "You know, you set out for the kingdom. Put your yeah. hand to the plow yeah. and look back, a longing for what life was like." Mm-hmm. You know that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, did he not say uh, not being worthy? Yeah, that was the culmination that was you're not worthy for the kingdom of God. Worthy of the kingdom of God. Josh, have you had a comment? Okay, so I'm sorry, it took me a minute to put everything together here, but when Lot welcomed the men in to his house, they originally said that they were going to, they originally refused his offer. Mm-hmm. They spent the and night in the uh, square. In the square. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, do you think it's possible that they were comparing righteousness to uh, to Abraham's level of righteousness because they gave him the opportunity to insist upon him giving the same hospitality? Hmm. So you're saying that they 
didn't were they testing load? Is that what you're getting at? Or um, I mean, that's definitely possible. They certainly. Um, yeah. It's certainly similar. it's it's very similar. I mean, like please please don't pass your servant by. Right. Was Abraham's deal? Abraham was These insistent. guys were like, come on in, my place. No, we're saying no, 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 really, come. That's right. Right. Wrong. The sages contrast him a little bit to say that that Abraham is like a lord. Right. He has this, and because he's so righteous and so close to God that the angels defer to him. Right, right. Whereas Lot is, well, he's a bit of a peon like the rest of us. And the angels are like, no, 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 no. We'll stay here, and he has to insist. Yeah. But to your point that, um, I think you're right, I think that the angels were kind of giving him an opportunity to, to demonstrate it, because I think that's, because that, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? I mean, how many times do we kind of do that? We're like, oh, let me, let me help you. No, 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 I got it. Oh, okay. You know, it's like, not to say that we necessarily always have to, to do something. Sometimes people really don't want our help. But I think that, um, uh, I think the point is to say that uh, we don't, we shouldn't look for outs. And and Abraham yeah. didn't do that. Neither did, to Lot's credit. He, in this passage, he doesn't either. He, do, he goes for what's right, um, even when he's given an opportunity not to do it. I thought it was fascinating. And I have to say, as someone um, who's heard this term thrown around way too much, especially in our society, um, uh, it's amazing that you read... Uh, Lot's comment, uh, Lot's dealing with the men, right, of Sodom, and they come up and this guy's not even from here. He's judging us. Mm. And it's kind of funny, like today, you know, I, I, that term gets used a lot today as well, you know, you're so judgmental, you know, judge not lest you be judged. And it's like, I think that, you know, mass assault on innocent visitors, that should be judged. Mm -hmm. That's wrong. I'm sorry. There's just no way around that. And um, and sometimes, yeah, I'm going to judge. When Yeshua uses that reference, he doesn't say you shouldn't. He says, be careful which right. standard you're using. Yeah. Do it right. We have because... to judge in our faith. Right. We, we are commanded to choose between good and evil. We have to discern that for ourselves right. and our families. Right. It's, it's not an option. We have to be different. Right. Absolutely. But it's more than that because everything... It, every single thing is judged. It's sometimes we judge favorably, and sometimes we don't. Right. So either way, you are judging. But if somebody feels that you've judged negatively, that's when they use that phrase. And I think the thing that's so amazing about Abraham is his ability to be that righteous bubble, that absolutely uncompromising righteous bubble, and yet he was so loving and so friendly and so kind that when people could point at him and possibly say, you're judging me, it was strictly because of his righteous standard. It wasn't because he got in the way. And I think that's the key. Sometimes when someone feels judged, it's because we did something wrong. We used the wrong language. Maybe we were too strict on our own standard. We talked about blackface being okay on Halloween. Yeah, whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. Um, the point is that... Uh, yeah, it was that job. <laughs> there might be some times that we, we do things that were insensitive or hurtful, and that's on us. Um, on the other hand, if people feel judged because we live a good life, or because we very clearly state what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong, that's on them. And I think this passage demonstrates what that looks like. That sometimes people who feel judged, they should. should. feel judged. <laughs> I got Suzanne in the back corner here. Um, you, know, Lo you have to speak up so we can get it on the tape here. Oh, uh, Lois' wife, I think she was attached to the, to the life that yeah, she had there. Yeah. And that's why she had a, yeah, yeah, she yearned for at least saying goodbye and she was unsure she wanted to do the right thing but um she hesitated too many too many moments and yeah and walk up to the hill i think it's a great interpretation of what happens there and i think that that's exactly what yeshua is getting at in his parables he's saying look don't start 
and then second guess yourself and think, this is a little harder than I thought it would be. Maybe I don't really want to do this. Or like when they left Egypt. And they're like, wait a second, wait a second. Yeah. Wait, 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 what are the pomegranates? Yeah, we had all the Yeah, the onions and the leeks and gee whiz. Yeah, we have yeah. But I think that that, yeah, it's funny. You were, Manna again? Laura, you were just in, in Israel in Tiberias. I don't know if you saw when you were driving around up there any, um, there's a large, very large shell of a hotel that is on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And I was right beside it. There we go. See? And I was right beside it, and I thought, if that wasn't there, this would be a gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I've got pictures That's of right. it. So that, that building, to me, is the literal... A, a picture oh, of Yeshua's parable about this very issue because he build says tower, you don't build a tower and then fail to finish cross, it right. talk about, Gregory's talking about not finishing well don't <clears> fail <throat> to finish the tower and then everyone who walks by will go look that guy didn't have enough to finish you know it, he's what a loser so quote unquote I'm paraphrasing but that's exactly what we think to, to, to your point Lori you walk by and go oh that's so ugly what a sad sight to see it's more expensive to tear it down than to finish it. Yeah. I wondered and, what they, why they didn't. Well, that's probably because it was too expensive. No it's one been wants years it. Years and years and years. I mean, it's been there since I was there, and that was a decade ago. And I think that so to the point though, I think that this is exactly what we're talking about. When when if you don't have this the the commitment to Hashem, if you don't have, if you're not so grateful for Yeshua's sacrifice on your behalf that you're willing to stick through it in the tough times, you end up like Lot's wife. You end up like the guy who starts the tower and doesn't finish. You you put in just enough, but then you come tragically short. And unfortunately, that's not enough. You know, being in the... Uh, right. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> that's something like that. Right, the same idea. It's, just, it's, so, it's so sad to see that unfinished project. And I think that's something, it's a warning to us. Because every day, it's like about the, you know... Uh, Yochanan ben Sakai reaching the end of his life and crying because he couldn't do any more mitzvot. It's like, that's the goal, right? You don't want to get to the end and be like, whew, okay, that was pretty good. I think I've got another five years left, so I'm going to live like hell for the rest of the time out. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> that's the... Or, you know, I've, I've got, you know, all these barns and everything, you know, just uh, right. eat, drink, and be merry. Right, that's all I have to do. All right, so I was going to change the, the Go ahead. Can we get... So... It's a big part, shall we? It is. Time. So I'm jumping right to chapter 20, and you can back up again if you want, since you own the day. People but, pop around as they need to. Yeah. So um, I was surprised. Like many of the men in this room, I married a beautiful woman. And married up by my dad. Hmm. But in chapter 20, we have at least, I think, the second time where Abraham is... Abraham is uh, is introducing his wife as his sister because she is so beautiful, somebody's going to kill him just to get her. Mm. And, you know, I've kind of read that with a smirk on my face and kind of chuckled through that, you know, and over the years. This time, I realized his wife must have been stunning. And also her person, personality. I oh yeah, too. no question, right? So I see that in in uh, in the first lady of the United States right now. Attractive woman. Okay. The first lady of the United States is not only attractive, 
but she is a very kind and compassionate woman. Okay. And everyone who's in her presence feels that and senses it. So I get it. She's not nearly as old as Sarah is in this story. <laughs> and yet, there's still the concern in Abraham's heart that she's still so amazingly, distractingly attractive that he needs some subterfuge to Not just sure. his opinion, because it turns out to be true. It turns yeah, out to be true. Yeah, that's exactly you know, right. Thought, you know, I, and I, that's, the, that's what got me this year was, wait a second, I, I certainly believe my wife is beautiful. Still, after 35 years, no question, turns my head. He believes other men's heads will be turned, and he's right. They are turned. But you know what? I think that so, so much king, of, too. So yeah. much, I think, but I think that part of it is not just her appearance. I think that the type of woman she was was no was and 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 to your credit, I think you did a great job raising daughters who look like Sarah. <laughs> they are. Because my point is that yeah, everything to do with their looks. A, but she is a, Sarah. Sarah is a strong woman who knows how to submit to her husband. That is a very appealing trait. Yes, it is. And so these very powerful men see a woman that um, is very capable, is going to be able to do whatever she needs to do to make the homework or make the life work or make yeah. whatever yeah. Uh, she can take care of herself. And at the same time, she's willing to follow, literally follow a guy halfway around the world when he doesn't even know where he's going. That's right, which, is, which is normal for a lot of guys, actually. Yeah. And I want to tell you, that was one of the things that really impressed me about this, the Holy Lands, and going from Jerusalem to Tiberias. It's like desert. And Jesus and his disciples walking that, or other men walking that, Abraham walking, you know, and not knowing where they're going. Where's the water? Where's the food? And you can't go but so long without those things. To go into a land you don't know anything about. I'm talking right, about Abraham absolutely. from the land of Ur to... And here's Sarah following him the whole way. Absolutely. And there's, a reason, there's a reason why Sarah is the picture of submissiveness to her husband with Peter mm -hmm. in the book of in the book of First Peter, mm -hmm. he references references her specifically, and we get that in this passage. Right. Um, that actually the quote from here, "My Lord," comes from this passage, mm -hmm. this week's parsha. So the the point that I'm getting at is not only was she gorgeous, you know, which you've also done a great job with, you know, genetically with your daughters as well. We appreciate that. It's as the wife. Husbands. It's the wife again. Uh, there we go. <laughs> um, um, but on top of that, uh, she she lived in such a way. She was such a type of woman that. Because, I mean, uh, Proverbs talks about this, you know, a, a gorgeous woman is foolish, like a, a, you know, a ring in a pig's snout, right? Men are attracted to them, but very quickly realize they're not for the long haul. Um, and, and these extremely powerful men who could literally pick anybody that they could see to be their spouse chose her. Amen. And I think that speaks volumes about the type of person she was. Amen. Joshua. Yes, sir. So, so talk a little bit about the title for the the grammar of this parsha. When we start looking for Yeshua in the parsha, mm -hmm. um, there's the obvious and there's the not so obvious. Obviously, the obvious parts is we see the picture of Isaac, right? And Isaac's not but only his we birth. Have the, we had the Akedah in here. That's right. That's right. So not only is Baraka's birth, but his offering of Isaac. In fact, we see we see death and resurrection. We see it mentioned in yeah. We see it mentioned in the book of of, uh, of uh, uh, Galatians, talking about as in a parable. Right. 
or Hebrews, yes, not Hebrews, yeah. Receiving back from the dead. Receiving back is in the parable. So the notion, you know, the, all the, the imagery is there. Uh, we also see ancestors of David and Yeshua, both being represented here, not only in Abraham, Isaac, but also in Lot and uh, through uh, Ruth. Moab. Hmm. So at uh, Ruth. Uh, so we we get those we get those wonderful like foundations built here, but the grammar actually talks about specifics, and the grammar the title of the parsha is Vayera, which comes from the beginning the first word which is Vayera, which is from the root Ra or Re, which is C and C is not to proceed. And this is the game that we talk we talked about this before where sometimes in the Sadur in English it says we see him with perceptive view when he returns to his abode. The word is not perceived with a perceptive view, and it is not perceived. It is to see. It is ra'a, or re, is to see with eyes, visual. It is to see, period. Right. In other words, it's visible. And he says, and the Lord was seen by him, to speak of Abraham. So he was seen. That's impossible. And as we mentioned, the only place in Scripture where it says God is invisible is a spirit and is invisible, cannot be seen by any man is in the apostolic scriptures. Paul. Judaism correctly notes that God is not visible. But it doesn't ever say it in the scriptures. It doesn't say it in the Torah, for sure. For sure. And it doesn't mean that he can't allow himself to So do. when we see this play between Judaism and Christianity, playing this game of what's real, what's not real, what's visible, what's physical, what's not physical, one thing we know is for certain, God can be anything and do anything, but he can't be visible. <laughs> and he can't be corporal. Okay, that That's, was, was Ramah. Judaism is a correct press. Yeah. Ramah. Uh, Rashi makes the note when he gets to this portion that there is some play on language that is difficult. Mm -hmm. Because when he gets to verse 20, oh, chapter 18, verse 22, he says, But Abraham stood before the Lord, is what it says in English. And in my Kumash, it says, uh, And God stood before, and God was still present before Abraham. Because they use Rashi, they use Rashi text. Because Rashi says that's actually what it says. It actually says that God, it actually uses the tetrachron, you know, Hashem stands before stands before Abraham, and it's not stands before him, but stands so his face, mm, face, his, face. his face. So it's not a it's a side that's visible is the point. Well, well the, the Hebrew is also backwards there, right? That's right. From what That's you what would expect. See, in English it says, in English it says, Abraham, stood, Abraham before stood before the Lord. But in Hebrew it says, the Lord stood before Abraham. As if he were the lesser. And it's not just stood before him, but it's stood face to face. It's, it actually uses the words, the word, uh, uh, not, uh, not Pneka, but, you know, his face. Mm -hmm. Face to face. That's uh, our, my face. Pros kind of yeah. So face to face. And didn't kneel, didn't, you know, basically as equals. So, right. And Rashi makes the note that this is difficult language, but he doesn't shy away from it. He's one of the very few that does. It's really sad that English does this, because English theologians should know better and, and should just tell us like it is, right? They have no theological... Their bent probably is correct anyway, but they, they make this really bad leap. My point here, though, is that the, the term... that the name of the portion by era is talking about a visible God. And the only way that he's visible is that he's manifested as a man. And this is what Judaism cannot accept. They can accept anything, but they can't accept that. That's right. In fact, interesting enough that the name of God we're introduced to in this passage is 
um, precisely uh, Hashem Yireh, which yeah, has to do with being a, seen, being visible. Very, very variation um, of the same. God, it, it could be interpreted, God will be visible or God will make visible, right. I guess, depending on how you look at it. But the point is that um, God's going to act in a way that I will see. Just the whole idea of, what, of the offering of Isaac, God, he, look, he looks, and behold, there's a, there's a ram. Um, think about um, all the, that's right. Think about all the times in the in the in the prophets that the word behold is used, and it, God's appealing to us. Our vision is good and it's bad, but most of the time, it says look and see, and, it, and the point is that it is it is tangible. Yeah. So it's not just that there's an emanation of some sort, you know. It's not a feeling. We don't have to call him an angel. A vibration. We're specifically told there's angels. This is not what it's talking about in chapter 18, verse 1, and it's not what it's talking about in chapter 18, verse 22, because right. it doesn't say an angel. That's right. It says Hashem. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. And along those lines, I was noticing that the beginning there, but I did, and when you read the commentary, it always talks about why did God choose to appear to Abraham at this point? And it's the, the commentators usually will say, well, he wanted to check on Abraham because he was sick. We, I think we mentioned that before. But... That also points to Messiah. The fact that like there's this care for one that's sick. I mean, that, that is something that when Messiah came, he emphasized greatly was caring for the poor, for the sick, for the widow, the orphan. In, in Judaism, he reinforced that more so than any one of his day. And I just think it's cool when God makes an appearance like this in that same context. It's, it's that heart of God that we see through Yeshua, and we see it here as well. Right, and the nickname, is that where you're going? I was, I was just going to say that, to your point, the, these parallels we're seeing this, this year between Abraham and Messiah. Abraham was called the friend of God. Yeah. And God manifested as Yeshua, our Messiah, made clear that we are, our, are his friends. True. That, that parallel is amazing. Right. Mm. You know, so. right. And, and I mean, to your point, Yeshua... The the mass the Messiah Judaism one of their titles for Messiah is like the, I think the Messiah of lepers. Mm -hmm. So the idea being that he cares for the sick is an important quality. That where's he does. that's uh, the Catholic Church? You know, where's Peter's leaving uh, Jerusalem? Where where is Messiah? He's in there. The lepers. Yeah. The, um, the leper Messiah. So the uh, the beginning. So and he's been in the exile. Right. Well, that also shows Jewish concept that God goes with them in the exile and. Um, you know, God's, God's presence definitely felt by Abraham here. We get to um, pass the whole Abimelech incident. I think lots of things stopped up there. Um, Relief. Uh, and, um, We're certain who the parentage of Isaac is. The right. role age chapter. Yes. Right. And, then we, and, uh, and Isaac is born. And um, this year, uh, this chapter had a special meaning in our lives because <laughs> we actually weaned our son um, Juliana managed to finally get to a place where he did not require any milk. We're off that completely, and now he's eating only solid foods. It feels like throwing a party, which is exactly what Abraham does. Um, Abraham throws a party. Um, it's a big deal, and uh, and it's uh, I, I love some of the, the references here because to your point, uh, you said earlier, no questioning his parentage, right? So the sages play off of this, right? They say that Abraham, there's this something like, you know, he was, um, that he and Isaac looked exactly the same. Like, you could look at him and say, oh, that's definitely Abraham. Except Isaac was seven foot tall. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
talking about the fear of Isaac, That's man. exactly right. <laughs> So it's really cool how God makes that very, very clear. Because he doesn't want any questions about his miracles. You know, I think sometimes... Um, I think it's cool... Well, we're not meant to test God. But I think it's cool when we expect God to do what he said. And um, God doesn't... God's going to protect his own reputation. And I think that I remember the story of Elisha after Elijah's taken up to heaven. And he has the uh, Elijah's cloak and he comes up to the river that and Elijah had just split. And, uh, and Elisha walks up to it. And his question is, where is the God of Elijah? And he throws the cloak down and the water split, just like it did for Elijah. And I think sometimes uh, there's a story of the watchman Nee. Um, he quotes that. And he's, he's, in, he's in, I think, the Philippines at the time. And the, the, the island he's on or whatever, the, 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 there's a domineering pagan cult that has their own deities and whatever else. And, and, they're, um, and so he's, he's been you know, speaking the gospel and whatnot, and people are converting. And so some of the, uh, the priests or what a pagan priest have a problem with this. And so they basically get in. They, uh, Watchman Nee believes that he needs to take on this sense of the same approach that Elijah had. And he said his, his prayer to God is, where is the God of Elijah? So he challenges the pagan priests to a God fight, basically. <laughs> and there's a day in their pagan calendar where it always rains. Or it always doesn't rain. I think it always doesn't rain. Anyway, it's like, I mean, it's like, like their sun god or whatever it can't rain on that day because sun god is in charge and it will never rain. Um, and so Washman Nee says, it's going to rain. This is like, you know, weeks ahead. Of it's going to rain on that day. So he makes a point of praying like every single day for this. Sure enough, buckets. I mean, just buckets. But the point, that I, the point of the story is I think that sometimes we don't, we fall in the same trap that James talks about, right? We don't receive because we don't ask. I mean, I believe God wants to do miracles in our lives. I'm currently sitting next to one of part two of miracles, um, our, our, our daughter here on the way. Um, and I believe that God wants to do that. And I think that sometimes we, um, in our own heads, because are we live in a society where um, things are so scientific and so you know, straightforward and it's so, you, know, you can see with your eyes, and you, you, what you work for is what you receive, that we sometimes fail to remember that God is in the miracle business and asking God regularly, not just throwing up a prayer, you know, Hail Mary, now we're done, we're good, check that box, hopefully God will do that for me, but that regular, daily praying. I mean, Abraham is faithful for decades before Isaac is born. Um, and so when God gives him Isaac, God makes it abundantly clear that there's no question this is his miracle child. Amen. Anyway, I think that I think it would be cool for us as we move forward in, uh, this year to find those things, to see those things. Like, what do we want God to do? What are opportunities, not for us to just get stuff, because that's not the point. What are opportunities for God to show himself um, generous, miraculous, gracious on our behalf? Strong. Faithful. Um, so I would... Getting towards the end here, we want to wrap up. Since we started early, we should end early. Um, it, yes, sir. The two daughters, I mean, um, if you're not into the Hebrew, you might not get it, right? So, uh, 
But say to say that in the same way that uh, Noah is on the ark with his family and there were no other people, uh, the sages say that, well, you know, this is, this is what the daughters were thinking. We're in. It wasn't it's just us. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't just the towns around us. It wasn't just that bad place that dad had us living there for a while with no Harris Teeter and no Walmart. Um, but actually, uh, the, whole, the whole planet's been burned up. And, uh, Funny, and they were they were they were part right. That is the next stage. Yeah, it was a little early. It was a little early. But you know that that was the motivation, if you will, the righteous motivation uh, to do some very bad things. To to yeah, um, repopulate the world as Noah had been uh, commanded to do with his sons. Uh, and uh, we're supposed to wait for that command, though. I think you should wait for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Moab. Right, the older, the older daughter had the son Moab, uh, son Moab, literally from the father, and the uh, the other one, the younger one, bore a son Ben Ami, literally son of my people. Um, so, I think uh, Rick brought it up earlier uh, that Moab, and you know we'll we'll get to it I, I guess in later portions, um, but from from this union, not many days hence, we we get Ruth, mm -hmm. right? And, and then Ruth. from Tamar and from and from Judah, we get the other half. Exactly. So uh, you've you've got, I won't say illicit, but questionable unions. Uh, I think illicit's a good term in this case. Okay. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but certainly, certainly questionable unions in throughout uh, all of. Uh, all the major folks. I mean, we get the same kind of stories that the sages have about Moses. Same kind of stories now that they're going to have about David because his great grandmother, Ruth, comes from this. And then interestingly union. enough, Mary. And, and there's an illicit or problematic question about the the lineage of Yeshua. Exactly. So this is this is not new, and it just is starting here um, for King David, whom I think. Gets short shrift with the church, right? We don't we don't speak as highly of King David, perhaps, as uh, the commentators or the sages do. And it, well, I mean, it is King David who's promised to have that. Uh, I think if you look at lineage, King David's right? life and his relationship to God, it's pretty obvious that he's pretty much the closest thing to Messiah before Messiah. There you go. I would say the. Moabites and the Ammonites leaving me, the prostitute that helped and Jericho. I would see those as God's redemption. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pulling good out of what was yeah. evil. Exactly. Absolutely. And what a great lineage to have exactly. in a great man or woman of faith. Well, and I think that's one of the yeah. things we, earlier we talked about. Um, we did talk about the importance of raising your children and whatnot, and um, certainly part of that. Uh, think about Lot, probably finding good sons-in-law for your daughters. Um, you know, and I did. Yeah, you did. It worked out really well. Um, but I think that that's one of the things that's a. Uh, at the same time, one of the things that I think I, I appreciate, um, and you doing with uh, with us, and sometimes seeing that, seeing sometimes diamond in the rough. 
and realizing like with Moab, like with Moab, God chooses. He go, uh, the, the Hasidics had this concept of gathering sparks. There's like the idea that, that there's there's some divine influence everywhere, right? There's something good in everything. We just got to go find it. And um, and so it's kind of cool how God almost like does that same idea. It's like, the Moabites are not good people. In fact, the specifically the naming of it, the sages go on to say, this is disgusting. And this sets them up to be worse than their siblings, the Ammonites. Mm-hmm. So when 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 uh, when God comes and uh, um, and kind of works with the people of Moab, uh, tells the people of Israel how they can relate to the people of Moab, it's like they're really bad. Stay very far away. Mm. Um, and oh, yet, gosh. in the midst of that, um, you have this this pulling out of this righteous one, Ruth, yeah. and that offers hope. That not everybody has the pristine lineage exactly. that goes straight down the line, um, uh, where one godly person begets another godly person, and so forth. And yet, you have that opportunity in every generation to be repentant, um, and in every generation to mess it up, really. Amen. But I think that um, I think that's kind of a cool secondary story. We would hope that we would raise righteous children who would have righteous children, and they would have that blessing of passed down righteousness Amen. but at the same From time your mouth to god's ear right at the same time we have to be humble enough to recognize that sometimes god chooses people out of situations that are not so good and that god can use those people and make them into very very strong godly righteous people Amen. Mm-hmm. we see those and as well. sometimes they go wayward and come back absolutely well that's a, that's a story with ishmael i think that um we'll see later the next i think it's next week's parsha um uh when Abraham dies, Ishmael comes back, but he, he concedes the firstborn right to Isaac at the funeral. And that's and then the sages comment on this to say this is proof that he had repented, that he had realized that Isaac was the son of, of the covenant, which is a huge deal. We don't get the same picture from Esau, um, and it's very important. Uh, in this passage, uh, it's interesting that both of Abraham's sons almost die. Oh, wow. You're right, there isn't. Um, both of Abraham's sons... That. That home pod is confused. Oh, yeah, the, uh, both, uh, both of Abraham's sons... <laughs> almost died. It does sound like Rick, doesn't it? There's nothing going on this home ball. That's serious. Oh, okay. Don't encourage him. <laughs> I know, right? Um, it, uh, but in, in one portion, we have Ishmael. Gets right. He's, he's in the wilderness, and the angel comes and, and uh, rescues them, shows them a, a well. And then the other portion, um, Abraham's about to slaughter Isaac, and the angel comes and says, no, 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 no. there's a ram over here. Um, it is, I, I know, it's, it's a, it really interesting parallels between these two boys or men growing up and you see um it's unfortunate that ishmael's life tends to takes a bad right turn um because he had been given so many so many similar opportunities to what to what isaac had and and it didn't it didn't click for him but i think that the the beauty of it is that abraham does a good job teaching him that eventually um he comes back in spite of that on the other hand isaac he's kind of the he is the uh the proverbial good son, right? I mean, he's um, he is the picture of Messiah. We get that in this passage. His willingness to sacrifice himself is a is a clear picture of Yeshua. Um, 
his even that his trust and his father. In his trust and his father, and and in his uh, his questions to his. It's interesting. There's a passage there that says, you know, he asks Abraham, well, "Where's the lamb?" And Abraham responds and says, "God will provide for himself the lamb." Just a great a great quote for us. And um, it's amazing that the Akedah is read at, uh, in, traditionally in the prayers every day by Judaism. Every day they read this chapter. It is the most read portion of scripture throughout the whole year. Because in addition to reading it every day, you also read it in the parasha like this, and you read it again as the reading during Yom Kippur, right? That's correct. Which is completely appropriate. Of course. So the Akedah, in fact, the Akedah of Isaac becomes um, uh, almost like a symbol of that sacrifice of the righteous that for Judaism in general, when they refer in the future to some of the other tragedies that befell the Jewish people, they use the Akedah language. They talk about, you know, the, the burning of the synagogue in, what is it, 13, 1400, um, where the, the Jews were slaughtered there by, in, in one of the, the pogroms or whatnot. Um, if I recall correctly, the Akedah language is used there. It's an Akedah moment. Right. Uh, you certainly get that picture as well with the Holocaust, too. So there's that idea that Judaism recognizes that the death of a righteous person provides atonement for the people as a whole. All of Israel, for all of history, is blessed because of what Isaac does in this chapter. Mm. How much more so than for Yeshua, you know, being perfect, actually perfect, being divine, and being, and being the Mashiach and doing the sacrifice on our behalf, then it enables us to have that permanent blessing as well. And I've got Suzanne, and I've got my father-in-law. Oh, I'm so sorry, Josiah. I've, I've lost you. Um, I'm around the room. Hang on. Start with Josiah. Work away that the way. So a couple minutes ago... Louder, please. I can't hear you. <clears throat> so a couple minutes ago, you mentioned that in the modern world, that everything can be analyzed and everything is scientific, and there's always a problem that can be fixed somehow through science or in the future through science. I can't say maybe. But... You mentioned that there are always miracles, little miracles that God does every day. And that God is just looking for a way to put a little miracle in the world. Yeah. And here in last week's portion, Lech Lecha, in verse 3 of 12 in the NSV, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Mm -hmm. And in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So we are more of a conduit of God's miracles and blessing from, for us to ask God for him to have a chance to bless the world through us, through miracles. That's a great yeah. point, absolutely. Yeah. And that kind of goes into what we're talking about here. You know, Messiah becomes that conduit as well, where he is channeling God's goodness and power into the world and Abraham is the same way because he lived that life that was so connected to God so many of its votes so to speak that God he was a vessel that Amen. God could pour into to then change well, more importantly to demonstrate himself in the world because one of the things Yishai Fleischer pointed out in his recent podcast is that after um, after uh, the sin of, in Eden God is hidden so as Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, we don't have that relationship with God anymore. That means that we have to manifest God in the world. And my dad was talking about earlier, that this is the whole chapter is about God being seen. Well, the way that God generally chooses to be seen is through us. Amen. When we act like God, then 
and we, we come channels. And, and to Josiah's point... Which is what the Messiah said about us. Right. And, but, the, the, but then to Josiah's point, it goes beyond just us. It's not just that we can do something good and it's like that's, a, that's a snippet, a tiny little snippet. But God so magnifies that and he allows us to be, to be conduits of miracles, to be conduits of, um, you know, of, of unique righteousness in this world. And blessing. So that, and blessing. So that the people around us not only get a picture of God or like, I can kind of see like, you know, the outline, whatever. They can actually experience God in this world through the things that we do and, and the lives that we live. And I've got Suzanne over here in the corner. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, it, it goes back to That would be fantastic. And we certainly see that, in our days. Um, you know, the prophecies are prophecies about like Egypt. Egypt is considered a uh, God specifically uh, calls them out to say like there, there, there's going to be a redemption and a, and a miraculous repentance that comes there. Um, uh, Joel Rosenberg studies in Ezekiel believes that uh, Persians are going to come hand you know out piles of them to come in repentance to Messiah, which is currently Iran. So that would be amazing. Um, so absolutely, I think that at the end times we're going to see um, we're going to see things that are unique and different, and we're going to. And if you're not, if you don't know what's happening in the end times, you can listen to the Tuesday classes where we go through these books, and you'll see the weird the weird thing: these countries keep getting repeated. Yes, sir. You can skip commercials if you subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for those who are are, are unawares, um, I think it's important to. Uh, Rick alluded to it, but we didn't discuss it, um, that when you read through the Akedah, according to the sages, Abraham went through it. Isaac died. Yitzhak was killed. And God raised him from the dead. And then you get the Ram thing going on. And Actually, I think one, one approach is that he dies not because Abraham actually kills him, but like he gets startled and his heart stops. Boom, yeah. and he's gone. Yeah. Either way, bottom line, in in the sage's perspective, Yitzhak died, and was resurrected by God. So, for your average entropy flight Christian, that sounds stupid, because that's not what the scriptures say. Yet, as as Rick quoted. Uh, or alluded to earlier, the apostolic scriptures, Paul actually uses that to say that Abraham received his son back, as it were, from the dead. To teach us about Messiah coming back, a righteous one, being sacrificed by his father, and then being resurrected back. It's a beautiful It's okay. It's a beautiful picture. But... It, that picture comes from the sages' interpretation of the Akedah and their right. understanding of what happened. Well, and it's, it's a, the picture 
in reality is that that's the, the, the favored son, right? the only son. The, the wording, you know, yeah. that you would give up your only son. Whom you love. Whom you love is, is right. just amazing. And that's exactly what God did. God gave up his only begotten son, the one he loved for us. And he did die. And he was raised just like it said. And, uh, Which is why I think there's value in studying what the sages come up with. And to your point, to that point, I think that's one of the cool things about it is it's not always that these these stories, are, um, parables, some of them legends, the true or are false. yeah. It's not a matter necessarily whether they're true or false, but kind of like Aesop's fables. You know, is the is the fox really uh, uh, mad about the grapes? Maybe, maybe not. The point is, we learn a valuable sure. lesson about bitter grapes. So the point is that like Aesop's fables don't have to be true. They're supposed to teach you a lesson. Amen. The the midrash, the traditions, the commentary, so to speak, on these passages, things like Isaac really did die. I don't even know if the sages necessarily are arguing it's fact or not. Their point is, their point is this teaches us something. Amen. There's something to be learned from this. Even if Isaac didn't die, Abraham believed so strongly in the power of God that he believed that he could raise him from the dead. So when Paul quotes this this tradition, or not uh, with the writer of Hebrews, whoever that happens to be, quotes this tradition, he specifically right, Hebrews, yeah. he's specifically alluding to it because of that. Not to say that it definitely happened. That's he right. makes a point of saying, as it were, as it were. And yet his his statement is to say that Abraham's faith was so great that he believed it so strongly that it's as if it actually happened. Um, but to your point, yes, he's a beautiful picture of Messiah. Um, it really, really stands out dramatically in this. And, and, and more so. And the location in, is even right. Yeah, and more so in the in the in the in the midrash than than even in the scripture. Which yeah, is which is cool. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, what I'm getting from all this is that Abraham trusted God. Isaac trusted his father. Yeshua trusted his father. And we need to trust God in the midst of our trials and tribulations to be obedient in spite of what we think might die or not die to create the miracles that the young man was speaking to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Gregory. So, for those that have the little Gutnech Humashia, the inspired yeah. version, yeah. <laughs> and, and to Suzanne's point about the, the non Jews, right, the nations being gathered, there was just this really neat little sparks of Hasidus blurb here talking about Yitzhak's birth being sort of this, this prototype of the Jewish influence specifically on the nations, on the non Jews. And that, anyway, this last part was just so interesting. It was saying how. The, in the Messianic era, it will begin with Mashiach's active efforts to perfect the world, and that specifically includes the work of bringing the non-Jews into into the fold, right? And then, uh, it beca and they quote, "He will fix the entire world" mm. from from right. that passage. And then it says, however, at some point, the redemption will be so heightened that even non-Jews will study God's words without even having, without even needing additional influence. And when I read that, I was like, that is really cool because that's kind of where, where, we, where we talked about, what we always talk about regarding the new covenant from Jeremiah. Is this like idea that you're not needing to be coerced to do this. Right. You know, you won't even be teaching each other anymore. You'll just, just kind know. of know. 
right? And anyway, so I just thought that was that was really cool, and they sort of tie it into this miraculous birth of Yitzhak, really? and and the fact that Abraham birthed to Yitzhak, but and also the nations as well, and so and that one will be influencing the other in in the right way in later. Cool. Well, that that whole concept that in the end the non-Jews would be studying the Torah is exactly, you know, we've had several rabbis standing in this room saying, you guys are literally a fulfillment of end times prophecy. Yeah. The end must be near because you Gentiles want to study the Torah. Heck, you've got a rabbi standing here helping you do it. That's, and it astonishes them. And, you know, most of them are very accommodating and see it as exactly what you've read. Yeah, the famous rabbi today, Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg, has been quoted as saying the fourth major revolution that is going to be happening and has started happening within Judaism is that non-Jews will have this desire not just to study Noahide laws, not, not being content with just like a little bit, but they will want the fullness of God's word revealed to them and that Judaism needs to recognize that's their next mission. Hoo-ah! I like it. We can't say anything more than that, so... Um, <laughs> can I, can I say something real quick? I can't. I was reading commentary, and I can't remember uh, who it was from, and I apologize. Well, if you can't quote it, forget it. <laughs> they said, um, oh, it, it's from the Torah resource. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, and then I can say it. All right, it, right. it's from their three-year cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Triennial cycle, yeah. Yeah, very slowly downloading. Okay, and because um, there's 151 of them, and they said that for Abraham to get to the point of truly, truly, instantly going eagerly to do this sacrifice of his son, it was because all the other times that he saw Adonai or Hashem following through, he had no, he had no doubt in his mind because. He had put all his faith in the only higher one, God, and that he could not lie and he could not forsake him. So he knew that um, Isaac would be raised from the dead. And if you see in this passage, what we didn't mention, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, what's the timing here? God tells Abraham, go and offer Isaac. The next verse, in the morning... Abraham Quick to get up. his donkey. Early, Early in the like morning. Abraham was eager to do good. And to your point, Suzanne, his, he, I, believe, I think you're right. His reason for doing that, the reason why that was so, so a huge part of his life is his relationship with God was so close and so intimate. He was excited. Um, even, even in areas where it was difficult for him, he was eager to do God's will Amen. because that closeness with Hashem just drove him to want to do that. Mm -hmm. And then on the third day, he looked up his eyes and saw the place. There we go. It's kind of interesting, too, that he says that God will provide himself a lamb, as if he, like, recognized yeah. the messianic significance of what was happening, because it was a ram, actually, right. that ended up right. being offered. But I, I always I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, it's a very yeah. messianic-sounding that's a very such a great fact that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, then you read Revelation and you know the crowd is parting. Who's coming in? The lamb. Yeah, that's just very interesting that that's the word he uses when he speaks to Yitzhak in his answer. It's very very cool. If I get my father-in-law to close us in prayer.
That'd be great. Good Father, we thank you, Alvina Volcano, that you have provided us with the scripture, the opportunity to get together and to pray. Father, we just lift up uh, those in the synagogue in Pittsburgh. We just pray that you would hold back the evil just a little bit longer, Father. That you would send your Son soon and in our days to redeem the world. We understand it will get worse before it gets better. But Father, we're grateful for the relationship we have with you, the sacrifice made on our behalf, and the opportunity we have to serve you, to serve others on, in your name and on your behalf, that others might see you and your miracles here in this world. Father, there's such a short time for us to keep your commandments before, uh, before our time is done. We pray that you would find us faithful, and you'd send our Yeshua Messiah soon and in our days. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Joshua. That's excellent.